calling for the religious leaders to take notice. Religious leaders, you need to hear. Elders of the land, you need to hear. Or, and I believe this is true, and I will show you in a moment why, he is calling to the actual oldest people. So it's not necessarily the leaders I believe he is calling to, although that could be real and it could be true, and if so, we would interpret it through that lens. But I also believe that he could be calling to those whose almond tree has blossomed, those who are older in the community, those who have gray hair or no hair. So the reason I say that is, is, is I want us to look at this because I believe it is that. Uh, and notice here that then he says, listen, all the inhabitants of the land. So the first thing he's going to do is going to call these elders, and I'll show you why I believe this the oldest people. And now he's going to not only call the elders the oldest people, but now he's going to call to all inhabitants of the land. And listen is the second imperative. And this is a command to everyone. It's a command to all of his people. The call for them, by the way, this idea of to listen is to reflect on this question. To reflect on the question that they have been asked. And then here is the question. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? That's the question. Has anything, based upon what's happening now, have you ever seen what is happening in their day before? And this is why I hold this to be elders to be chronological. Those who are older, he is saying, have you ever seen this? Have your fathers ever seen this? Have your grandfathers ever seen this? And he tells them then, listen again, he says, tell your sons, verse 3, tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. So it seems to be a chronological, a generational calling. Those who are older, have you ever seen this? Has your fathers ever seen this? And then he provides the last imperative, excuse me, he provides the last imperative that you need to tell this to the generations to come. In other words, what you are seeing is to be repeated in, perpetu in perpetuity, forever. It's to be repeated to your sons and to their sons and to their sons. Now this sounds very mosaic, doesn't it? Hero Israel. You are to tell them to your sons and to their sons, to generation after generation. It's as though the prophet here is picking up on the language of the Shema, which was the command to be repeated through all generations. And he, now he says, you need to repeat this. So first, it was the recollection of God's deliverance from Egypt. Remember? Remember? The first time he told them, it was a recollection. What did he do? He exiled, he took them out of Egypt into a promised land. And now if I am right, and this is post-exilic, in other words, now what he is talking about, now what is God doing with you after? What is God going to do with you after this? So if one time he was talking to the nation of Israel after they have left Egypt, what in the world will God's deliverance be here? So here is the prophet's call. Have you ever seen anything like this? Don't ever forget it. Tell it to your sons and to your son's sons so that they may tell it to the next generation. What are they to tell? Well, thank you for asking. That's where we're going to go next. Next we have what we would consider a people's reality. 
a people's reality. This is verses 4 all the way through verse 12. And verse 4 introduces us to three lines of Hebrew poetry with what almost acts as three waves of destruction. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I don't have time to address the amount of ink that has been spilled on trying to determine what these locusts are. What I do want to draw your attention to, and I do believe they're real locusts, um, but I, I want to draw your attention to the repetitive ways of destruction. We have already seen that repetition, and we have already talked about this here in our faith family, that repetition in the Bible, they didn't have uh, highlights, they didn't have uh, italics, you know, they didn't have those things. So the way in which they brought emphasis in the scriptures is to repeat things. So here, he, this is a means of literary emphasis. And the point is, this is meant to display God's a judgment on God's people which has never been seen before, except at only one other point in history. When? Exodus chapter 10. Do you remember when God poured upon the plague of locusts? Locust plagues, by the way, in this day and age were normal in the area. So locust, uh, locust coming up and eating everything would not be abnormal in the area. But not like this. This is a unique, a destructive, and it was a terrible event. And as, as unique and as destructive and as terrible as this event is, that is still not the point. Because for Joel, this is even a precursor. But first, we have to see that the wrath of God to his people is inescapable. And anything that was left, repeated three times, was eaten, which was repeated three times. Did you see it? Verse 4, what the gnawing locust left, the swarming locust eats. What the swarming locust left, the creeping locusts eat. What the creeping locusts left, the stripping locusts eat. It's almost as if God is just showing this inescapability of his wrath that is going to be poured upon his people. And the prophet's call here is to hear, listen, and tell of God's judgment. I want you to notice here, this is all speaking of an event that has already happened. It is all these verbs are in the past, so this is speaking of a past event. They have, what they have left, they have eaten. What they have left, they have eaten. What they have left, they have eaten. It's already happened. So he is coming and he is saying, he is looking at this and he is going, okay, I get this. It's already happened and that this is no ordinary thing. This is, as we will see, an awful day of the Lord. We are in the midst of an awful day of the Lord. For as great as God's election of His people was in, the, in the Moses and in the Old Testament prophets, in the Old Testament covenants, excuse me, here we discover an undoing of creation, if you will, and the fulfillment of God's judgment on His people just as He promised if they would not obey Him. So what have they seen, what they have seen, excuse me, has been sent for a purpose. 
All these things that have they have seen has now been sent for a purpose. What was the purpose? Verse 5. Awake. Awake, drunkards, and weep and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. You may be like, dang. Why is he so mad with drinking all of a sudden? What's all this drunkards about? Why drunkards? What is he getting at here? Listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. It's very important that you understand this. What has, what has just been taken away from the locust? All the vegetation, everything there is. Who is going to be the first people that's going to suffer? Drunkenness. Drunkenness is a demonstration of bounty. In this day, to be able to be drunk, it depended upon excess. You were not able to get drunk if there was no fruit of the vine. So drunkenness depended upon excess. Good wine would have to result from what? Good harvest. Drunkards drink a lot of good wine. Awaken drunkards and weep. So the very first people he's going to go to are those who overindulge in what God has abundantly provided for them. But then he not only calls the drunkards, he calls all y'all wine drinkers. All of them. Why? Now he's going back to everyone who is to not drink because there is no fruit, there is no harvest, and therefore there is no drink. See, what God is doing to His people through the prophet is He is saying this to them. Your self-indulgence is now going to be turned into weeping and wailing. He says, this is cut off from your mouth, verse 5. It's going to be cut off. By the way, this verb idea here for the word cut off, it is an act of violence. I want you to imagine that you have a glass of wine. You know, maybe like this. Some of you drink your wines like this, you know, with your pinky out. Other ones you got it like this because the little wine glass is here and you know you're drinking your wine. You have your wine glass and you're, you're sipping. I want you to think about you're about to go drink your bottle of wine and somebody comes and they slap it out of your hand. That's what that cut off means. In other words, you think you're good. God comes and he slaps it out of your hand. That's the image that you got to have. This is not going, going, God going, oh, let me have your glass of wine. Oh, thank you. Oh, can I have your wine? Thank you. Oh, thank you. We're going to put it to the side. You know, none of that nonsense. No, what he does is he goes, let me get it out of your hand. And you may be asked, why the drunkards first? Because they're overindulgent. Why the drinkers first? Because they're going to be the first to suffer. Because ladies and gentlemen, listen to me, their temporary happiness was based on the fruit of the vine, which was the abundant blessing of God, and it's no longer there. We need to be very careful in our day. Yes? Because the abundance of the vine as a demonstration of the blessing of God could very well be removed from us at any time. And the very things that you think you deserve, you will find out quickly, will be removed from you, from us.
And the prophet here, he then goes on and he personifies the locusts. He calls them a mighty, numerous, invading, destructive nation. He calls them this nation. These locusts are this nation for a nation has invaded my land. He's talking about these locusts. I believe they're real locusts. I don't believe you have to, you have to extrapolate this as being a, uh, a nation. I think he's reinforming these people that I have taken all everything from you, from, from all these locusts, and it has invaded your land. It's mighty and without number. What is this idea of the teeth of a lion? It's comparing it, this, these, these locusts to its ferocity. These locusts have come in and they have left the land in a rather pathetic state with nothing to salvage. That is what's meant by branches have become white and there's no hope of harvest. And then from the drunkards, he goes to the entire community. And in verse 8, what do we see? In verse 8, we see a bride in mourning. Oh, the irony! Can you hear it? Why would a bride be in mourning? That's the one person who ought not to be in mourning. That's one of the most joyful times of a woman's life. To be the bride. It's one of the most joyous times. And here he is saying the bride will be in mourning. The loss of harvest and cultivation is the first thing we saw. And here is a loss of unconsummated marriage and marriage. What should have been a celebration has now turned into to a lament. And in verse 9, so we have the drinking. In verse, I'm sorry, in verse 7, we had the drinking, right? In verses, well, in verses 5 through 7, we had the drinking. In verse 8, you see this idea of, of the virgin and the bridegroom and what's happening with this, with this wedding and what's going on in marriage, and that's broken. And then the next thing you see is what should have been a celebration is an event. And then in verse 9, what do we have? We have eventually the worship of God's people. The offerings that you are giving are no longer able to be offered. The offerings that you are giving are no longer able to be offered. Now you look at that, we look at that in our day and go, what does that mean? What were offering, what did offerings bring? When you brought your offerings in worship, what did that give them the capacity to do? The worship of God, the offerings and the sacrifices that they brought were conditions for God to meet with His people and His people to meet with God. And now your offerings and your sacrifices are no longer any good to me, which means ipso facto, you are not going to be able to come to me as your people. I want to turn with me to the book of Exodus, where I think he's picking up on. And when I read the Old Testament, often I look back at the book of Exodus as his prophets just continue to expand on their teaching of what they have seen. Exodus chapter 29. We're going to read verses 42 through 43. This is what he said, talking to them. He says, It shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord. Well, I will meet with you to speak to you there. I will meet there with the sons of Israel and it shall be consecrated by my glory. And now God is coming and He is saying that your, your grain offering and your drink offering for the house of the Lord is removed. They are cut off again, cut off. These offerings are no longer able to be offered. 
And in verse 10, the field ruined, the land is in mourning. The grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up. The fresh oil fails. These are all, ladies and gentlemen, basic food requirements. And they were signs of God's blessing. They they were all abundant in God's blessing. This is what God had promised His people. And now it is all gone. And when you read this on the backdrop of Deuteronomy 28... This seems to indicate something to come. Seems to indicate that there's something coming in the future. When His people will refuse to repent, they will endure the consequences. Ladies and gentlemen, this is further evidence of the day of the Lord where God is going to reject His people for the offerings are cut off by God and therefore God will not meet with them. The covenant blessings are removed only to be met with covenant consequences. And then lastly here in this portion of where the people are in verses 11 through 12, we address the farmers and the vine growers with shame and wailing as well. You see, they represent the entire agriculturally, ag- agricultural society. It's all ruined. All their efforts are futile. All the fields are dried up. All rejoicing is gone. And what is this reality due to? Unrepentant sin. You will no longer have drink. You will no longer have worship. Everything that you had is taken away. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the result of sin, yes? So we move from the prophet's call into the people's reality, and now we're going to look at verses 13 through 18, and we're going to look at a priestly command. And it's as though that now what the, what the, what the prophet is going to do is he's almost got his, his machine gun ready and he's about to boom, 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 boom to the prophet, uh, to the priests. He's about, now I think he's going to go and speak. He's already talked to the elders, the oldest of the land. He's talked to everybody in the land. And now he's about to give some rapid fire commands to the priests. The priestly command. There are seven direct imperatives right in a row. Listen and hear what the prophet is saying to these priests. Gird yourselves with sackcloth. Lament. Wail. Come spend the night in sackcloth. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather everyone and weep or cry. These are commands. These are direct imperatives from the prophet telling God's priests, the leaders of God's people, the religious leaders of God's people, what they are to do. Gird yourself with sackcloth. Lament. Wail. Gather everyone and cry. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn solemn assembly. In other words, religious leaders, you need to remove your garments of worship and mourn. 
Stop acting like you are not a part of this. You need to remove all the things that you think make you important and you need to weep. Can I ask you a question? Because we believe in the priesthood of believers. See, you thought this was for me. Because we believe in the priesthood of believers. When's the last time you stopped and wailed and mourned over your sin. Maybe, maybe, maybe we need to just see this as taking off all of those, those fake hypocritical glasses and masks. And maybe that's what we need, pastors, elders. Maybe we just need a season at Pine Summit where we just mourn and lament. Religious leaders, remove your garments of worship and mourn. Don't rejoice, mourn. In other words, he is telling them all this and then he tells them, bring the people back to God. He is saying to the priest, fulfill your responsibilities as priestly intercessors and worshipers. Bring them back. Fulfill your responsibility. Men, one of the things, one of the primary responsibilities that I see, and we're going to be going over this in the next year, something I'm going to lead our journey on our men and women, women who are married in, this, in our covenant, in our faith family, I'm going to be calling you to a lunch very soon, to a meeting, so I can sit down and talk to you where I'm about to take your men, okay, over this next year, over the next, uh, of the next 12 months and this next year to come. Because men, I believe that one of the fiduciary responsibilities we have in our homes is to be the priest of our homes. If you want to know the rest, priest, prophet, provider, presider, and protector. We are to be the priest of our homes. We are to be the men who stand before God and who provide intercession for our families. We are to stand before sin and Satan for the purpose of our families. And we are to be the ones who rebuke sin and bring the gospel to bear in every area of our lives. So men, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask, no, I'm going to demand from you a responsibility. Fulfill your responsibility as priestly intercessors and worshipers and demand it in your home. Fast, he says here, as a demonstration of your grief and sorrow. Fast. When's the last time you fasted for grief and sorrow? Do you know how hard it is to get Americans to fast? To stop eating? Stop eating. For the purpose of grief, for the purpose of sorrow. Come together, all you who repent. This is what he's saying. Come together, all you who repent. You remember, ladies and gentlemen, that was the purpose of the temple. The purpose of the temple was to bring everybody together. For The, the purpose of the gathering of God's people was for the purpose of remi- reminding themselves who God is, what God has done, who we are in light of what is God has done and what we are to do. If you don't believe me, go read 1 Kings verses, uh, chapters 37 through 40. And then in verse 14, he says, cry out loud, plead to God. Not only individually, but collectively. You see, being a part of God's people is very personal. It is very personal. I got saved as an individual. I got saved as an individual. It is very personal. But it is also very communal. 
Because although I was saved as a person, I was saved as a person to be a part of a community of people. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that nonsense. You know, I worship God at home. Well, I hope you do. But, but that uh, worshiping God is at home doesn't exclude you from worshiping God with the community of faith. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, we don't get that choice. It's not like I read in Second Opinions, verse 4, where I can sit back and go, oh, yeah, I was saved for me. I know I'm saved. I'm going to stay home and do my own thing. No, God says, I saved you for a purpose and a reason, one of those purposes to be a part of my people. I don't get to opt out. Because if you get to opt out, you are saying you are Lord. God, I got this. I make the rules. Remember, I am my own self-sovereign. I do it for my own self-glory. And God, by the way, if I'm going to follow you, this is the way I'm going to do it. Ladies and gentlemen, I got news for you. You better go back and read your Bible. My God, don't play that way. The God of the Bible don't play that way. You want to follow him? You do it on his terms. Thinking you're going to... Thinking I hear this all the time. When I get to heaven, I got some things for God. Oh, really? Oh, really? No. I come before you, church, and I want you to know it is very private. My relationship with God is very personal, very private, but it's not only a private practice. But you see, we as God's people are His people. He is our King. He is our Lord. He is our Father. And then the prophet comes in in verse 15 and he says, alas for the day. Notice what he says, alas for the day. Why? For the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord has come in this plague and the day of the Lord will soon come. Uh Uh-huh. The day of the Lord has already come and the day of the Lord will soon come. How is the day of the Lord going to come? You're going to hear that next week. Jeremy is going to come and he is going to preach that message for you. Furthermore, the day of the Lord is far off, which we're going to see in chapter 3, which I'll be preaching for you in a few weeks. But for now, ladies and gentlemen, I want us to see this. Joel says the day of the Lord, the day when God intervenes, by the way, this is what the day of the Lord means, when God intervenes in human history in judgment to his people is near. The day of the Lord has already come. God has already intervened in human history in judgment. And the day of the Lord will come when he will intervene in human history in judgment once again. And then the prophet comes and he summarizes all he has shared in the next few verses. And I'm going to summarize it like this. Your food is gone. Gladness and joy and worship is removed. Verse 17 says, The seeds shrivel under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are torn down for the drain is dried, grain is dried up. I don't think the point is too difficult for us to see in its context, right? Everything is gone. Salvation is here. Even the animals experience the suffering from the famine due to the sin of the people. Right? He said that, verse 18, Now the beasts groan, the herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. The sheep are suffering people. Now, the cows are one thing, but for the sheep to suffer, that's a totally different thing. You see, ladies and gentlemen, sick animals are the result of an agricultural devastation. 
and I do want you to know, I know some of you may think I was joking, but the mention of sheep elevates it because sheep are more adept at surviving than cattle. Cattle can't survive. Cattle are cattle. Sheep can go places that cattle can't go. They can do things that cattle can't do. And if the sheep are suffering, if they are even starving, you know things are happening. Lament, O priests. Listen. That's the command. If I can wrap it up in one word, it would be this. Repent. Can't you not see that all the abundance that you have been given is gone? And this prophet comes in and says, can't you see that everything that the prophet has provi- uh, that God has provided for you and blessing is now gone? You are in exile. If I am right, you are in exile. It's all gone. Look at where you are. Sit back. Look at your sin and repent. So, the prophet's call, the people's reality, the priestly command, and lastly, lastly, the prophet provides the example. The prophet provides the example, 19 through 20. You see in verses, in, in these verses, he calls them the priests. Verse 13, he starts, gird yourself with sackcloth and lament, O priests. He's talking to these priests. He's talking to the people who stand, ministers of my God, all these people. And then in verse 19, he stops talking to everyone and he draws a circle around himself and says, if revival is going to start, it's going to restart right here. Listen to what he says, verse 19. To you, O Lord, what does he say? I cry. Joel calls to Yahweh. For the prophet is experiencing the pain of it all. Joel, here by calling him God and calling him Yahweh, he is rejecting all other gods. He is rejecting all other idols. And he is saying, you alone, O Lord, Yahweh, are my God. He sees the destruction. And he knows that if God doesn't respond, they and he are without hope. For Joel here, you can tell the situation is so desperate that he focuses thoughts on those things that are essential in a way that displays that all of creation is dying. All the blessings of God's promises are removed and now God is revealing His judgment, which is a true sense of what it means to be apocalyptic. This is apocalyptic. This is revelatory. Revelation. That's what it means. To unveil, to be an apocalypse, apocalypsis is to unveil, it's to show, it's to reveal. And here, it is nothing less than the day of the Lord through judgment. You see, beloved, it is here we find ourselves this morning, possibly with our own need of lamenting. Joel and God's providence and story shows God's demand on his covenant people to follow him. And in Christ, in the new covenant, we have been given, the Bible says, the indwelling of the Spirit, so that, quote from Scripture, we may no longer live for ourselves 
but live for Him who died on our behalf. For those who are in sin are in the grips of sin's outcoming. To be in covenant with God is not to merely be reminded of the glorious grace of God's goodness to us, but that as His people, we ought to grieve our sin and come to true repentance before God. We are to remain as His faithful people who are to abhor sin and love our Savior. That's who we are to be. The very idea, faith family, that repentant people come near to God, not complacent people. Let me say it again. Repentant people come near to God, not, re, uh, not complacent people. For those of you who don't know, one of, the, one of the fundamental environments that we use in our faith family is what we would call a DNA. DNA, it's a same gender triad, group of people, group of men who meet with men, women who meet with women, and we call people to three realities. DNA, discover the truth, nurture the heart, and act in obedience. Discover the truth, nurture the heart, and act in obedience. And do you want to know one of the things that we do almost on a weekly or bi-weekly basis, depending on when our DNA meets? We ask one fundamental question, and I think it is absolutely essential to the way we, we operate this, and it's going to be essential into our next year. As I begin to read the book of Joel, and as I begin to look at this, as we're going to grow as a faith family, here it is. What have you repented of this week? Or what do you need to repent of now? Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, God's people are able to come before God because a repentant people are always near God. Now, don't mistake in me. Repentance is turning from our sin and self and surrendering to God's wills and to surrendering God's way in God's time. You see, repentance is recognizing that the Lord alone is sovereign. And it looks to Him for not merely our pardon, but also for the blessing of being His people. Beloved, it's no wonder Joel is called the prophet of Pentecost. But here we stand in the truth that because we are in the time of the new covenant through the birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, that God, praise be to God, has now come in this time, poured out His Spirit in us so that now you and I can be redeemed and brought before Him. And in that, we are to be repentant and to turn to Him for our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. We are to recognize our need of God because God's people were never meant to be abundant in sin. We were meant to be holy as He is holy. We were meant to be different. No wonder we sing, I come God, I come. I return to the Lord, the one who's broken, the one who's torn me apart. You struck me down to bind me up. And you say you do it all in love. 
that I might know you in your suffering. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship. I will sing a song to what? To the one who's all I need. Are you there? Though my heart and my flesh may fail, though earth would give way below, with my eyes I will see the Lord. Oh, lifted high on that day, behold the Lamb that was slain, and I'll know every tear was worth it all. Though tonight I'm crying out, let this cup pass from me now. You're still all that I need. You're enough for me. Though, I, though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless you. Though you ruin me, still I will worship. I will sing a song to the one who's all I need. Church, I know that we often come to passages like these and we go to the Old Testament prophets and some of you are sitting here wondering, why does this guy every fall seem to want to break us down? Why is it every fall these elders of ours want to go into the Old Testament, into these prophets who are always talking about sin and repentance? Why do they always want to take us to this point? And every, it seems like every time I get into September and October and November, when everybody else is singing about, you know, uh, Santa Claus is coming to town, these guys are telling me I'm a sinner. Why? Because I have good news for you. Do you hear me? Because we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve for Him to take away all these things from us. Guys, we don't deserve a cup of wine. What we deserve is His judgment. And yet, what is all of this preparing us for? A season called Advent. Do you know what the word Advent means? Coming. Who's coming in the Advent season that will follow the preaching and the teaching of the prophet of Joel? One who will bring about a true Pentecost for your life. The only one who was able to live the life that we couldn't live and died the death that we deserve to die. It's none other than Jesus himself. So that when we come to Christmas, all of it begins to kind of blossom and we go, we deserve that. And now yet he has promised us this and it was fulfilled in him. And if he has promised it, it will come to pass. So we come into these mornings and we hear a message like lamenting and wailing and weeping and repentance and all these things. And we come and we say, hey, what, 
What hard word, Pastor. You know, I was expecting to come today and for something to be done for me. I was expecting to come today and, you know, to have my spirits lifted up. Well, I, let me lift your spirits up. All ready? You ready? You're a sinner deserving a separation from God. And yet through His amazing grace and mercy, through His Son dying on a cross, He comes and He promises us salvation in His Son. So that now you can be His people, living for His glory. And now you can fulfill the purpose of why you were put here on this planet in the first place. To glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. That's good news. Good news that Mondays are going to try to squash out. But yet Sundays we come and we're reminded of it over and over and over again. Will you play a stand to your feet? God's word has been preached. You have heard the truth of the prophet that has come to God's people and reminding us of what we deserve. And yet here we are, church, we come to this table reminding us of the body and the blood of Christ. For those of you who are in here and have not called Him your Lord, have not called out to Yahweh as your God, not accepted Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension as your atonement for your sin, have not trusted in Him as your Lord and Savior, we would call you to do that. How do you, how do you profess that? How do you confess that? You do that through baptism. By being dunked beneath the water and to being brought back up to be identified with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that He was raised from the dead and you will be saved. Will you do that this morning? We, we, we will, I promise you, I will help get you, uh, get all the dates and all that structured so that your baptism can happen. So that we can get to the point of, of identifying you now in the life of Christ. If you've never done that, if you've never experienced redemption, if you're in here this morning and you can honestly say, I have never been regenerated. My heart has never been changed. Yes, I've went to church. I may have done many, many things. But I, I, have, I have done this in His name. I've done this in His name. But yet, you, He will not be able to say to you on that today, enter into the joy of your salvation. Why? Because you've never been saved. Matter of fact, He will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Does Jesus know you? As your Lord and Savior, are you here this morning? And if He doesn't, and if He hasn't, and if you're not willing to believe and confess, then I want to, I want to ask you a favor. I actually, kind of a command, and in, in, I, I, want, I want to be very cautious. You are more than welcome to come up and watch what we do at this table. You are more than welcome to pass by, but I'm going to beg of you for the sake of your life, for the sake of your health, do not participate in these elements. For those of you who are believers, who are unwilling to repent of your sin, who are disobedient toward your church, wherever you, uh, wherever you go, or maybe you're in, in, uh, in, in disagreement, I would call you, please, before you do this, don't rec before you come and participate in these elements, for your, hurt, for your health and for your life, do not come to this table and participate. You're more than welcome to walk by uh, for the purpose of being, uh, participating in the, in the ceremony, but I, I'm going to ask you, don't participate in the elements. What I would beg of you is that if you are a believer and you do have ought against your brother, 
that you would forgive your brother and then come and participate in these elements. So what we're going to do in the next few moments is for those of us who are brothers and sisters in Christ, and if you don't have to be a covenant member of ours, as long as you're a baptized believer, you're more than welcome to participate in these elements. What we are going to do over the next few moments, each one of us who call Him our Lord and Savior are going to, like the prophet, bow our heads and lament and ask for His forgiveness. We're going to ask for His... We're going to repent of our sins this week and we're going to ask for Him so that we now can come to this table and participate. And if that is the case, you are a baptized believer who are willing to repent of your sin this morning, abhor your sin, love your Savior, then I I beckon you, come, rejoice, rejoice with us in the goodness and grace of God. Yes? So in the next few moments, those of us who call Him our Lord, will we bow our heads before our holy God, confessing our sin and going to Him as our Savior? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you this morning as a mere mouthpiece for these people, for us as a community, for those who are gathered in this room by covenant or even by invitation that anyone that is gathered in this room who will proclaim you as our Lord and Savior. Jesus, we know that we desire you. We know that we deserve nothing. We deserve your wrath. We deserve your judgment. We are guilty of sin. And yet we know that you are loving, that you are righteous and just, that you are good and gracious. And so God, we come before you this morning as a community of people, lifting up our voices of our hearts, asking for your forgiveness, begging for your spirit to indwell us and to protect and provide for us. And that, Father, as we enter into this place, coming to this table, once again this morning, that we would be reminded that it is not in our works, but it is by your grace, by faith, that we now walk in newness of life. And that, Father, we would participate in these elements in a way that would remind us that as we leave this place, that we are your people, called to declare you as our King and to demonstrate your kingdom to the world around us. Bless this time together, for it's in Christ's name and for his sake. And all God's people said, Amen.